you know, if you actually go and speak to users who are currently solving that problem with whatever is the closest competitor to your solution, you should absolutely go and spend time with those users because not with the context of, hey, will you switch to my solution, but with the context of what can I build that will add value to this person without me having to build everything else that exists. Hi there. This is Vijay Damoji Prapu and you're listening to the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. The show where I go behind the scenes with top go-to-market practitioners to discuss their mindset and tactics. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another and a new episode of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. I know... I know it's been a good five, six months since the last episode uh, was released, but my commitment from now on is I'll be consistent. That's my promise to uh, my listeners. And hey, it's just not you, but for my own selfish reasons, I look forward to enjoy speaking with the go-to-market leaders. For example, today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Shruti Kapoor, who is the founder and CEO of Wingman. And right now it's Wingman by Clary because of the acquisition. I know we'll go into a lot of other details, but I'm super excited to be speaking with you, Shruti. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Vijay. And uh, yeah, let's get the season started with a bang. Sounds like this is the first one of the season. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, I know we were just talking about the background and the wallpaper that you had before I hit record. So I'm really curious, what led you to actually go and live or work in Dubai? Because I believe you were you grew up in India, is that right? Yeah, that is true. I So, well, yes and no. I mean, I, I did spend majority of my life in India. I spent a decade in Singapore, somewhere in between. And I have just recently moved to Dubai like a few months back. So it's, you know, I think in many ways, I'm enjoying the change. I think uh, being in a new place really makes you kind of relook at everything with a new lens. I think the business reason for this was, uh, you know, as part of the acquisition also, uh, you know, wanted to be in some sense closer to the broader action and then given the constraints with visa there are not that many countries as indians that you know you can quickly relocate to so uh, you know this this seemed like a good fit from a time zone perspective from you know access to europe and generally very well connected so yeah here i am Excellent. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially the time zone and the access and given we talked about the visa situations and all that. But yeah, I'm glad that you relocated and you look to be that person who always look for change and always looks to be out of the comfort zone. You just mentioned about growing up in Singapore and then growing up in India and now relocating to Dubai. So super, super excited about that. And with that, I actually want to transition a bit over here and then go into more of the first question, what I typically ask of my podcast guests, which is, how do you define go-to-market? Yeah, I think, you know, the way I think of it is there are two things that a company needs to do, build something and then make sure somebody is using it, right? In fact, the t-shirt I'm wearing says, make something people want, right? And this is the Y Combinator motto. So I think of go-to-market as anything that helps you get your product into the hands of users. Got it. Excellent. Yeah, I would love to get into the story of the whole Y Combinator. And by the way, I was looking at your about and 
it was really nice and creative as to how you came about and told your story of how you found that pain point, how you found that founders, the co-founders, and what made you get into Y Combinator and so on. So let's get into that. Actually, that's a good transition. Let's talk about that. It looks like you were leading go-to-market and sales team, and then you ran into this problem of your product and even marketing folks asking about, hey, can we get customer feedback? That was the genesis of this. So tell me more about the story and what triggered you go to you and the team to go down this path. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, before I started Wingman, I was working at a company called Pioneer, which, you know, today by no means can be called a startup. They uh, listed, they did an IPO a year or so back. But at the time when I was working with them, I was like the third employee in India. They were just trying to enter into this new market. And, you know, my role was essentially to help them figure out their go-to market, right? And the way the team was structured was there was a central team which was doing marketing and product. And then they would have like regional teams that were doing more customer-facing roles, you know, partnerships, customer success, sales, and, you know, a variety of other things that show up. Uh, What that did was it made the distance that exists between customer-facing teams and marketing and product teams much more stark than it is in usual organizations. And, you know, that gap always exists. But I think in this case, it just made it much, much more stark. My challenge during that journey was that, you know, of course, we were launching this product into the new market for the first time. There was a lot of stuff that we needed to learn from what the customers were telling us and take back, you know, to the rest of the organization. And it wasn't always easy because I'm sure all of us have had that experience where, you know, we tell the product team that, hey, the customer said that and, you know, it goes in one ear and comes out the other. But if they happen to be on a call with a customer, it has a very different impact. And they're suddenly like, oh, that's why the customer wants it this way. And, you know, let's see if we can prioritize this on the roadmap. So I think in that process, what we realized was that, you know, there's a lot of value in having that voice of customer for teams outside of sales as well. And then as a person who was on the sales side, my challenge was that, you know, which again, everybody faces, you have folks in your team who are doing well and folks who are not doing well. And, you know, sometimes everybody seems to be putting in a lot of effort, but getting very different results. And you're wondering why and, you know, what can you do to help them? So that was kind of my other challenge. And, you know, those two things came together. We were like, you know, both of these problems can be solved if we actually could go back and analyze every call that happened between the customer and the salesperson. And then, yeah, you know, if we could also get broader insights from it, because nobody has the time to listen to every call recording. So that was how this started out. Excellent. And so when you are doing the problem discovery, obviously you found that problem and you must have done some sort of market research. Were there alternative solutions back then? Yeah, so, you know, what there were definitely a couple of solutions that had just started out. So I think in our space, there are basically two competitors that have grown well, Chorus and Gong, which were both also just starting out at the time when, you know, we were doing our initial research. Maybe they had like a year of head start at that point. And, you know, we saw that almost as validation. Again, you know, when we look at solutions, when we look at problems, and if we don't find anybody else trying to solve it, it's almost a question mark, right? Like, is there something that I'm thinking that is completely wrong? And I think in this case, a feedback that we got very consistently early on uh, was, hey, I'm not sure if my sales reps would be okay to record their calls. 
uh, right? And, you know, forget about it. Even if my sales reps were okay, I'm not sure if my customers would be okay to record those calls. And honestly, I think if you were in that ideation phase and, you know, uh, five people told you that, you'll be like, ah, that makes sense. And that's why nobody else is doing this, right? So I think some competition is good. <laughs> yeah. No, you bring up a very good point, especially for start. You obviously... You have so you're playing with so much risk, so many variables, right? You want that market to be validated. Yes, there's a lot of talk about category creation and all of that, but you don't take that approach with a startup on day one versus the category creation comes later on. But to your point, I think there's a good lesson inside for founders, the current as well as the aspiring founders, is make sure that there is some market validation versus I have personally seen where people go down a path and they burn their money, they burn the time, they burn their motivation, the energy, and they burn the people like one, two years, and then nothing happens. So kudos to you and your team of co-founders to actually take that as a validation and a hypothesis that's already been tested out. You don't need to do that. I think the other thing that I learned through that process of early market research was, you know, when you have a competitor or you have a solution that for any problem that you have, right, there is a way that somebody is already trying to solve that problem. It doesn't matter whether there's a direct competitor or not. There is always competition of some sort. And it's important to find whatever that closest thing is and go and figure out like, you know, even with that closest thing, what are the challenges that people still have? Because very often, you know, otherwise early on when you're trying to make that initial product and you're trying to do, you know, that minimum viable product, you kind of say that, hey, I have to do all of these things which are going to give me parity with the existing solution. And then I have to build all these other things which are going to give me differentiation. But, you know, if you actually go and speak to users who are currently solving that problem with whatever is the closest competitor to your solution, you should absolutely go and spend time with those users because not with the context of, hey, will you switch to my solution but with the context of what can i build that will add value to this person without me having to build everything else that exists and it's a very easy pitfall that people make and you know you can easily delude yourself into building products for two years and not having a single customer no for sure again it goes back to the whole steve blank and others who have promoted this right which is a lean startup philosophy and uh, clearly you've done that from the early days which is good so Curious, how did you actually go about finding the customers of Chorus and Gong and other alternatives? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's a little bit of serendipity and uh, a little bit of the fact that Silicon Valley is a bit of an eco chamber, uh, right? So if there is SaaS company and uh, if it's based in the valley, uh, there's a pretty good chance that, you know, their first hundred customers are also based in the Valley. If you speak to enough uh, Valley companies, you'll either find somebody who's heard of that company or using that company. And think that was broadly how it happened. Excellent. Very good. So switching gears here. So you found a problem. You found that there is market validation and there's a need based on this. Now, what was the next step where you actually met with your co-founders, both on the, who's now the CPO? and the CTO, the current CPO and CTO. So there is that problem finding phase. There's a market validation phase. There is also the, how do you find my co-founder? That's key. So tell us and share your experience to the listeners as to how you made that happen. Yeah, so, so actually the order was a little bit different. I met my co-founders before we necessarily you know, zeroed in on this idea. And so the way I met Murli, who's the CPO, was that you know, through a common friend who he went to college with in engineering and, you know, who went to college with me in my MBA school. And Murli was at that point just moving back to India and 
you know he was very clear that he wanted to start up he had previously worked in a very early stage startup that had gotten acquired by google and so he had seen that startup life and then he had seen the google life and then he knew where he wanted to spend his time um and so he was very clear he moved back to india just with the intention of starting up and uh, that's when we met and at that point you know i, I still had a full time job and we started just discussing ideating and we actually went through multiple ideas before you know freezing on this one shrikar and murli have actually known each other for a long time since their first uh, jobs in 2005 in trilogy and i think you know broadly speaking every company probably has different founder team stories but you know if somebody is looking for that co-founder i think your best bet is to make sure that unless you already have somebody who's complementary to your skills to spend that time and effort in finding uh that person who's complementary to your skill set because that can make a huge difference in how much you can accelerate and how lean you can stay because you know we were a founding team of three people and you know we had different uh, specializations in some sense we could actually afford to keep a relatively small team right because there was just so much tech and product work that between murli and shrika they could cover so i think it helps to kind of just make sure that you stick to the you know what is it that you need to complement you and find that person Right. Yeah, for sure. Identify, know your strengths, of course, the self-awareness, and then know your gaps as well. And the key is to find that person who not only will cover for your gaps, but also from a chemistry and a wavelength point of view, you all click. I, th- I think that's that's key. Excellent. So before we dive or go further into Wingman and your target audience and who you serve, one final question on your early days of your startup journey is, what was your experience or how did you prep for the Y Combinator pitch and what advice would you give to people who are looking to apply for Y Combinator and our other incubators? Yeah, so um, one is I think you should think about whether or not it's going to help you depending on where you are in your stage of the journey. So at least with Y Combinator our experience was that if you were you know at the point where you were either just kind of building that product doing user research and figuring out what was your value proposition then it was a great uh, time and phase to be in Y Combinator for us you know again i think there is enough and more advice on you know what does Y Combinator evaluate and you know how to go through that interview process i don't think there is like a real secret sauce i think it's just a lot of clarity in terms of saying hey this is the problem that the startup solves you know why has nobody else tried to solve it before what does the competition look like why do we think we are going to succeed and in fact as we went through the process of kind of preparing for uh, the Y Combinator interview and the application process and we spend like a lot of time just answering these questions as you know three founders sitting in a room and going through it a lot of these things just became clearer to us to the extent that i was like you know at this point it doesn't matter whether or not we get into Y Combinator just the interview preparation process has helped us so much in making our thinking clearer and crisper so i think that sometimes it's some of these external things work as forcing functions right so you know it's it's important to make sure that you know what are the th- questions that you need to answer first and it's easy sometimes to just go in the flow of building and working and you know hustling whereas you might not have figured out some of the basics yeah i like the fact and how you phrased it which is irrespective of the outcome or the result when you go through the whole y combinator application process but the very fact that the questions or the problem statements that Y Combinator application is putting forward will actually force you as a team to really for you guys to realize where you are in the journey and is this the right thing are you going in the right direction or not exactly yeah 
Excellent. So switching gears, let's talk about Wingman, coming back to the Wingman story here. So who do you serve? Um, clearly, you serve the salespeople, but sales, you got different uh, titles and roles. Like who do you serve and why did they love Wingman? Yeah. So I think one of our early insights as we were doing our market research was that, you know, when I'm building a product for uh, you know, recording and analyzing sales calls. I can serve anybody, right? I could be serving. I could be serving product teams, uh, right? Helping them get user insights, for example. But what we realized was that, hey, the first thing is the team that you choose to serve, your stakeholders, have to be people who at least have the uh, ability to influence uh, the adoption of your platform, right? And then the natural thing for us was that, hey, you know, you can't get this adopted unless the sales leader decides to get this adopted. And therefore, you better make sure that the sales leader is an important stakeholder uh, in your product. The second thing was that, you know, what we noticed was that a lot of times people were looking at this and this happens with a lot of sales tools. And I think it's legacy because of the way Salesforce operates, right? Like, no sales rep ever believes that Salesforce helps them, right? They all believe that it helps their manager and, you know, they're only spending time in Salesforce because their manager needs them to. So what was important to us was to say that, hey, you know, this should be a platform that doesn't just serve the manager, but it should serve the sales reps as well, because ultimately it doesn't matter matter how much insights the manager has on, hey, you know, this is what happens in the calls that I win. And, you know, these are the things that my reps are doing wrong. At the end of the day, the reps have to be the people who are taking the action to correct those things, right? And unless they are the ones directly involved, you know, you are just creating additional loops. And if those loops don't close, then, you know, no action happens. So for us, uh, that was a very early insight. And we were like, we have to build a platform that directly helps the sales reps and ideally helps the sales managers by making sure that the sales reps can help themselves. Yeah. So going back more into the tactical and just doubling down on this thing. So how many user research calls were you doing a day or a week during this whole process? So I would say we kind of did it in maybe two or three batches, right? So before we started out, we spoke to around 20 to 30 sales leaders, right, who were more directly from our network, just to validate the problem and just to understand like, hey, you know, this, what would you do? Or how would you use it? All right, this was before we wrote a single line of code. And then uh, once we, you know, started building the product, uh, of course, our priority was to make sure that we could have people who could actually use it and then give us feedback right so so that was kind of the you know the tinkering part right and at that point we did a bunch of interviews but maybe that was totally i would say 30 or so as well uh, right and then the third phase was that once we had kind of figured out the product you know we knew that we wanted to do real-time insights we knew that we uh, you know this is what the meat of the product needs to look like we then went and you know did like two months and this coincided with our time at Y Combinator where we said we will go and speak to you know 40 companies specifically in our ICP we'll be very strict about you know who we qualify within that ICP and so that was you know kind of three phases in which it happened for us. God, I think, b by the way, I know my peers in other startups, as well as me personally, have struggled with this. Yes, we know the concepts of ICP, like defining the ICP and then trying to reach out and doing the, that research and, and getting feedback is a challenge, 
right? I mean, so as an example, I can come up with an ICP of, hey, it has to be a company that has at least five employees or at least one location. But that's, again, such a broad, broad profile with multiple markets, multiple industries, multiple use cases. So how did you really narrow it down? Because you have a very limited amount of time. Yes, you lined up all those people like from validation point of view, but how did you narrow it down and log that ICP? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's easy to get greedy, right? And to also, there is always that temptation where, because you're trying to tell a bigger story to the market, to the investors and everybody where you're like, hey, you know, this is a $20 billion market, you know, everybody in the world can use it. It's easy to kind of go into that zone that, you know, everybody can use it. But very early on to make sure that you have something that is useful for at least somebody and you're not building for two years essentially means that you have to find a small segment you know, later on, you can expand your product and you can expand your segment. So for us, there were a few things, right? One was we realized, okay, is this generally a well-accepted technology? The answer is no, All right? Does it influence user behavior, right? And like, you know, call recording is something that is somewhat difficult for people to accept the first time. Again, that's true, right? So essentially what that means is you need early adopters, right? And people who are early adopters, you know, in our case are specifically other tech companies. And I think that's broadly true for a lot of people. And then the next thing was that, okay, so do I sell to anybody who is in the tech space, right? Could you be a service provider? Could you be a product company? Could you be? And so so that was kind of the other distinction. And the third distinction was, what is the size of that sales team? I could sell to a single founder or I could sell to a thousand person company, thousand person sales team. Now, where do I want to play? And what we realized was that, hey, you know, early on there's a sweet spot. We don't want to build a self-serve product on day one. We want to be able to build a product that, you know, delivers more value than just being, you know, recording calls and transcribing them, which means that, you know, there's going to be some effort for adoption. And, you know, that led to us saying that, hey, it has to be at least a 10 member sales team that's going to, you know, get the most value out of this. And because of the, you know, the product maturity, the number of time and energy that you want to spend on like creating something very customizable and the settings and all of that, maybe you don't want to work with like, you know, thousand member sales team on day one. So we then kind of narrowed it down further and said, you know, maybe it's just 10 to 50 member sales teams that we want to work with. So yeah, that was kind of our process. Got it. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that amount of details. So 10 to 50. And because your user is the salesperson, maybe it's the BDR or the AE, right? But the buyer is not necessarily not them. It's going to be the sales manager who the BDR or AE reports to. So you need to get both on your side. Yeah, I think from a sales process perspective, it's a fairly top-down approach. So we would engage with the head of sales or the sales manager when it came to us actually selling our product. And then, you know, they would then do a top-down on telling their team to adopt it. Of course, you know, today the ICP has expanded and, you know, we work with larger companies, you know, today we have the ability to also segment out the complexity of the product and the features into saying, hey, you know, I could have a very lightweight version for, you know, a single user team versus, you know, I can have fairly sophisticated features. But I think early on, it's important to keep that narrow. Yeah, no, for sure. So you completed or covered the journey of from founding to getting your initial set of customers and of course, investing and fundraising and all of that. So if you switch gears over here, you were at about point where you were making like single digit million dollar ARR when Clary acquired, but it's still a big jump from your first 5, 10, 15 customers to getting to that million ARR. So what is a growth 
trajectory and how did you make those investments you as a ceo plus handling the whole go to market like what were your scaling what are your growth channels and how did you actually go about doing that yeah so i think it it was interesting so one is because we were building a product for sales teams i felt that you know i wanted to be as close to that sales process for as long as possible so that you know one i was also the user of the product and two i was getting a lot more direct feedback on you know how every customer was receiving it or how every prospect was receiving that product so what that meant was that to a large extent early on i was you know the only sales person the only sdr you know i was doing my outreaches i was doing my cold calls and i was you know doing the demos and closing the deals we in fact only hired a head of sales you know close to hitting like a million dollar mark right and for us what that allowed us to do was you know to kind of learn very quickly and make sure that we were also users of the product or at least i was a close user of the product of course the rest of the team was as well how did we think about that investment and i think we made some mistakes along the way as everybody does <laughs> yeah, right so the first was we did try to in some sense outsource this early on so you know we worked with somebody who was going to be like a fractional head of sales for us even before we had like our first sales person and you know the idea was that listen you know this person can now go set up the playbook you know can set up the early meetings and then help us accelerate that process because of course as the founder you have like a million other things to also take care of our biggest lesson there was that you know early on the customers are not buying the product because they trust a brand right there isn't a brand uh, right very likely that the product is getting built after you've promised it to the customer so they also know that very likely there isn't a product <laughs> but the thing that they're going to trust if they were to make a buying decision is you and therefore as a founder you have to be the face uh, that they see and once we learned that lesson i kind of then amped it up to say that hey you know if i have to be the person that they trust now let me build my own credibility around it so you know i then invested a fair amount of time and energy in you know interacting with that ecosystem getting to know other folks within sales and we had zero network to start with because i had never worked in the us 90% of our revenue comes from that market and so it was you know essentially uh, being very conscious about saying that hey i am the face of the company and you know people need to be able to trust me and you know part of building the brand for the company is also building the brand for me and so you know kind of going through that process and that really helped us because you know also most of our you know a large part of our revenue comes from inbound uh, interest and all of that kind of the play we had to uh, kick start with us putting uh, a lot of these things in place yeah can i just double click on that i you're just getting to the point where a bunch of questions were running in my head especially yes early days it's going to be outbound but at some point in time that outbound cannot scale especially with you doing the outbound for the most part so somewhere and somewhere along the line you had to do content you had to do like g2 like analyst sites and others right you need to broaden your brand presence and awareness so what were the investments you made in the different phases so for example yes paid would be one i would assume and uh, content yes but you need to drive traffic to the content both on paid and organic so what was that growth channel investment the phases and the investment look like for you back then right so firstly i think paid was actually not something we invested in or got a lot out of you know at least for the first few years you know i kind of think of it as layers of a cake right so first is and you have to think of it as what can help people build trust right so first 
they're only building trust with me while I'm still trying to build the brand for the company, right? Then the second layer of it is once I have those first five customers, can I use them to help build trust with others, right? So even, you know, you're not going to show up on the top of G2 when you have five customers, but you can still get good testimonials from them and you could still you know, leverage them, whether on your own website or in your outreach messaging or, you know, working with them. And then the third layer of it was, and so being very conscious about it to say, hey, you know, I work with you now, you know, if you like it, then can we use this for building trust? And then the third step was that, you know, you kind of multiply that, right? So if you have five customers, hopefully, you know, through them, might through testimonials or through references, you're able to get another five each, then, you know, that makes it 25. And, you know, that's a great number. Then you layer it to say that, okay, now that I have 25 customers, maybe now is the time to go and hit, you know, review sites, you know, other channels. Also, Eventually also depends on the persona, right? So I think for salespeople, they are much more likely to speak to other salespeople to get advice on, hey, you know, how are you doing something versus, you know, I think a product or an engineering person is very likely to go and just do like their own research on Google and, you know, use that to base decisions. So the peer recommendation factor within our industry is much higher. And so we knew that we had to invest much more in that. So it wasn't just review sites. We, you know, spent time and energy in being part of communities, you know, being part of their forums, understanding what questions people ask and, you know, making sure that where possible, customers could represent us on those forums and those discussions. So that was, I think, a big growth lever for us. And again, all of this is free, right? Like it doesn't cost you money to do this. It just requires you to be thoughtful. And then something interesting happened. Like, you know, one of my customers referred me to a podcast host and said, hey, you know, I want you to speak to this person. And that, you know, kind of triggered a whole set of, you know, a positive activity of its own. And then I thought, oh, yeah, maybe this is another good channel where I could, you know, get the voice of the brand heard by more people, you know, while still being scrappy and not spending a ton of money. And so it turned out like with the pandemic hitting and everything, I think uh, that first year I must have done like some 30 podcast interviews with different uh, hosts because that was also, you know, a great time when people were figuring out what they could do in the remote world uh, to stay connected. And so there was a lot of activity and we were just lucky to be in the middle of it. So I think you just have to be very aware of one, you know, where does your user hang out uh, so that you can literally go hang out with them? And two, how can you amplify that trust factor? Got it. And and you were just asking all your salespeople, the customers as to where do you hang out? Is that, was it that simple? <laughs> <laughs> to some extent, yeah. So, you know, when you're building a sales tool, it's interesting because one, you're doing, you're a user of that product. And two, the people that you're speaking with are also salespeople. So they're kind of your peers. And, you know, they are happy to, you know, in, in a non-COVID world, happy to go grab a beer with you and exchange secrets. So, yeah, I think it's very often it's just about, you know, in the pre-COVID world, at least being at the same events and then, you know, finding out like, hey, how would you learn that? Or, hey, how did you go hire that person? So, yeah. Yeah. For sure. And I love the fact that you were not investing blindly in paid versus it was all organic and more driven out of curiosity. That's the sense I'm getting, right? I mean, curiosity and the sincere intent as to, okay, let me learn more about my person and the people I'm serving. And yes, they're using my product, but what else can I be doing and how else can I make sure that while I'm serving them, my brand and my product is getting amplified? Exactly. And I think people often, you know, underestimate listening. And I'm not just saying, you know, in a sales conversation, I think even in the broader market conversation, one of the 
things that I recommend every salesperson to do when they join my team is, hey, go find the, you know, find 10 kind of, you know, social media sales influencers and go follow them. Because it doesn't matter, right, whether or not you go on a sales call, but you need to know, you know, how they think, what language do they use, what is troubling them, what is, you know, aggravating them. And today with social media, I think we have access to those things for free and unlimited, sometimes too much. But I think people underestimate the power of uh, listening and like you know when people say oh how should i be using linkedin uh, most advice is like hey build your profile build your brand like go post every day but i think it's much more important to post five comments five thoughtful comments a day on other people's posts than to post something of your own every day yeah for sure i mean uh yeah i, I don't expand on that i think you just nailed it perfectly so i think you're i know coming back to staying curious Coming back to serving your persona, which is the sales team and the sales managers. So looks like your team has come up with the economic downturn analysis. Do you want to share and just talk about like give, give a quick overview of what that is, what drove you to that and how people can learn more about that? Yeah, so this quest actually for me started at the time of COVID when, you know, the world seemed to be suddenly going topsy-turvy. And one thing that I kept hearing from, you know, casual conversations that I was having with people on social media or online was, you know, we are not able to sell because everybody is frozen budgets. And I was like, okay, you know, does that actually hold true? So I said, I got curious. I went and, you know, searched in all of the call transcripts that we had over at Wingman to see, you know, how often is that coming up and has that you know, dramatically changed because of the pandemic. And what we realized was that, yes, it had changed, but it hadn't changed as dramatically. And it wasn't the biggest factor that was getting deals to be lost, right? And to our surprise, the biggest factor was, in fact, timelines. And what had happened was that suddenly, you know, everybody had gotten into a, like, had had this feeling of paralysis because they didn't know what was going to come next, right? So you're in this shocked state. So, so that was kind of when we got curious about the data and when, uh, right now, we are again going through a big tectonic shift in some sense. We decided to go back and look at uh, the numbers in today's context to see what happens if people, you know, today are talking about the economic downturn and sales calls and what are some of the things that then impact win rates for deals. And yeah, I think there's lots of interesting things there around, you know, how are people, uh, how, what has changed about discussions on discounts, budgets, uh, timelines, everything. And I think uh, one of the interesting things that we've learned is, you know, if, if people talk about ROI in conversations, today, win rates for deals actually increased by more than 30%. So, you know, lots of nuggets like that. But yeah, I think maybe we should share it with the audience. You can include it in the show notes. Absolutely. So I'll make sure that we do include in the show notes. I think that's key, especially, I mean, for me, I'm personally seeing when I work with uh, my sales team over here at my current role, clearly they're trying to find it difficult. And the obvious question then comes, okay, what is the ROI and why should I buy or switch now versus not do anything, right? And this is where framing the conversation around the value, but at the same time, showing clear ROI, I think definitely matters in these days for sure. So this has been a great conversation, Shruti. So just going uh, more towards the closing stages, I got two questions for you. One is, who would you say are like maybe the top one, two or three people that have really influenced you and shaped you as a person and mentored you in your career growth and journey? Sure. So I think the biggest influencers as we grow up right early on, definitely parents and especially you know, in my case, I would say like my father's fearlessness. He sent me to Singapore to study, you know, and just after my 10th standard and I went there alone. And I would say like, you know, in those days, it was probably a little bit 
more of a leap of faith because you know you couldn't communicate as easily there was no video calling you know a call cost you a bomb so i think he kind of through that example showed me the value of being fearless and taking your chances i think that's made a huge difference i think you know over the years it's always hard to you know there've been many influences i think one was a previous manager of mine who uh, his name is kiran and like the one thing that he taught me was that you know you don't have to accept all corporate mumbo jumbo for what it is and uh, you know you can always stop and question things and i think uh, that's another important thing that we sometimes you know overlook so yeah i would say those two and i think overall uh, there are lots of books and media that i learn things from but i think personal connect those would be the ones excellent yeah great examples and great role models there for you switching to the last question here so if you were to go back in time and go back to day 1 of your go to market journey right what advice would you give your younger self now yeah i think first is i would say you know always ask the question how am i building trust with this person and like you know what is my best lever to build trust today and i think second is don't take what people say at face value observe their behavior rather than their words because you know not out of you know maligned intentions but people often behave very differently from you know what they say or what they think they do excellent with that thank you so much for your time shruti and it's been a wonderful conversation it was really enlightening and insight insightful i'm sure all our listeners will benefit from this so wishing you at wingman wishing you the very best for the future thanks so much vijay yeah i had fun hi there thank you for listening to this episode of the b2b go to market leaders podcast i have all of the show notes and a full transcript on strata.com s t r a t y v e.com subscribe on apple podcast or wherever you get a podcast leave a rating and a review your comments will help other go to market professionals find this podcast